Everybody wants to be somebody. <laughs> nobody wants to be nobody. If there was ever a somebody who was really a nobody, then nobody would really be somebody. That little ditty is a kind of a succinct expression of the enigma of this Buddha's teaching on anatta or non-self characteristic. It was written by an old Chinese monk that I practiced with in Penang. And he had a way of putting the most most of the Buddha's teachings in little simple rhymes and rhythms and couplets that the common folk of Malaysia could understand. And sometimes I think that we make too much complexity, uh, difficulty, and even confusion out of this teaching of the Buddha of Anatta. It is a very profound teaching. It is maybe the most profound of the Buddhist teachings to see through the construct of a sense of self, an I, and to see how we construct it see the resultant suffering of it, and to see how to see through it. Tonight I want to add more words (laughs) to this topic, but hopefully in a way that will not lead to confusion and unclarity, but will help you see that already each of you have had many experiences to confirm the Buddha's teaching. In our ordinary life, in our ordinary reality, the give and take of our family life, social life, work life, it is essential to have a clear sense of who we are individually, to be able to distinguish our feelings, thoughts, bodies, ideas from others. But it's not a given that we can do that clearly. That is something that we have to learn as very young children, where our boundaries exist, who we are, who we aren't and to the degree that we successfully complete that necessary task, then we do move through life in our adult years with some 
coherence, some sense of continuity, some ease even, in, and comfort in a sense of who we are. That much is essential and necessary. The difficulty as the Buddha saw it, or the limitation as the Buddha came to discover it, is that when we cling to this sense of ourself in the face of conditions which don't support it, we suffer. And unfortunately, that happens quite a lot. And so our sense of ourself is vulnerable, it's fragile, it feels conflicted, tense, in conflict with others, competing with others, and so we end up suffering, (coughs) unhappy with our sense of who we are. (coughs) The difficulty comes only when we are attached to, identified with, whatever sense of self is being constellated in the present moment. But let me back up. This belief that we have of a self is in the Buddha's understanding the operation of a single mental state called ditti, wrong view. Taking the wrong view of things. When we look at a scarecrow out in the middle of a garden with the shape of a human, clothes of a human, a rough appearance as a human, the crow mistakes it for a human. We don't. The crow has wrong view. We, on the other hand, are more sophisticated. It takes something as complex as the sensations we feel, the thoughts we have, the memories we have, the plans we have, for us to believe that this thing sitting here on the cushion is a human. When we look at this thing, this process of mind-body phenomena rolling on, we take it to be not only a human, but me. We, like the crow, suffer from wrong view. Attributing to this body, these experiences, these thoughts, these feelings, these memories, an I, or a me, or a mine, is the operation of wrong view in the mind. The Buddha said, 
this wrong view has everywhere and at all times most misled and deluded beings. And so it's not a mere 30 years or 40 years or 50 years of identifying with this particular body, this particular set of conditions which we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a pervasive view of all beings, of all of our innumerable existences, if you happen to believe in that. A very thickly, deeply conditioned, repeatedly believed wrong view. And so when we come to sit, come to look closely, we come with this view. And we undertake our practice from a place of believing this view, this wrong view. And so it is difficult for us to hear and confirm from our own experience here this teaching of the Buddha on wrong view, construction of self, and the uh, insight into the non-self characteristic of this phenomena. There are five experiences that we've all had today that point to the reality of this truth for ourselves, experientially. And I want to enumerate them, I want to point them out so that we can begin to see how the truth of anatta is actually being experienced. Now remember, we've lived with this wrong view for lifetimes. How are we going to recognize when it's not there? It's something that is so intimate to us, so woven into the fabric of our understanding, that we may not see it. We may not see its operation. We may not see it when it stops operating. So these five experiences that I want to identify, talk about, expose a little bit, they really, they are really the five khandhas, the five aggregates of clinging, the five aggregates of suffering that Kamala spoke about a few nights ago. But I want to unpack them as we experience them here in retreat so that we can begin to see for ourselves what the Buddha was pointing to. So the first experience is of the aggregate or the kanda of citta or the operation of mind, the operation of thought, really. 
And what we do with thought is construct a sense of self out of our personal history. When I was born, I was called Steve. And my parents said, Steve, you're my son. You're a good boy. Sometime. And this over here is your brother Pete. That was to distinguish the two. And throughout this life, thoughts, feelings, behaviors have been attributed to this Steve. And I can prove, you know, that I exist because, you know, I have a birth certificate and uh, a lot of photos when I was a little kid and, you know, school records and cards, report cards and, you know, bank statements and a social security card and uh, all kinds of things. So I know I exist because I have all of this stuff accumulated to this person, Steve, me. And I'm sure all of you have the same. Now, throughout the existence of Steve, he has been a son, a brother, an uncle, a teacher, a student, uh, an employee, an employer. It's been many different roles, have worn many different hats. And the roles, of course, and, and relationships have changed a lot. But what remains is the identification with them. Identification has no uh, uh, morality, so to speak. It, it's really fickle. It can transfer its allegiance to anything. Whatever's happening, we can get identified with. Out of this vast complex of roles and relationships throughout time, there has been woven this tapestry, this picture, painted on this tapestry of life called Steve. But each thread of that tapestry is, as we are coming to discover here, an impermanent, an impersonal, uh, an almost insubstantial event. And yet we take a bunch of them, weave them all together in a colorful way, splash some paint on it and say, that's me. The complexity and the compact complexity of this whole tapestry of events creates the illusion of a me, of a self of something here to whom all of this is happening. Depending on the strength of my identification with my roles, my relationships, my memories, my numbers, depending on the strength of my identification with them, I suffer. To give you my well-known example. I belong to the United Airlines Frequent Flyer Club because fly a lot. 
One time I had a flight from the West Coast to the East, San Francisco to Boston, and due to some change in schedule, I needed to leave earlier than my scheduled flight. So I called the airlines and said, I'd like to fly standby on the Red Eye nighttime flight out of San Francisco. Said, such, any room? Oh, plenty of room. That plane is, is, is two-thirds empty. I said, great. I'll be down to fly standby. So I got to the airport, and there was a madhouse at the, uh, at the gate. And I got to the counter, and I said, well, what's going on? And they said, well, we canceled one of our flights to Boston, and so all of those people are on this flight. It's oversold. Uh, you're not going to be able to fly standby. So I said, hmm, well, you told me I could. Yeah, well, that was if there were some seats. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I said, I'd like to, you know, at least find out, and maybe there's some room, and if there is, I'd like to go. And by the way, I'm a frequent flyer, a premier frequent flyer, <laughs> a lot of miles. So they said, well, you can wait, but not likely. So I waited, and the plane was uh, boarding, and so they were calling the rows as they do, all the first-class people and then all the... Uh, all the premiers that were had their ticket, and uh, they tried to get people on to get the plane out of the gate on time. So everybody was filing onto the plane, and everybody was on, and there were three of us that wanted to fly standby. And so they said, "Well, we don't know if there's any seat yet. Come on down, walk down the you know the entryway down to the door of the plane, and when we get everybody set down, if there's any seats, then you can get on." So I said, "Okay." I'm the frequent flyer. (laughs) Remember? So I made sure I got in the front of the line of those other two. (laughs) So they finally got everybody set down in the plane, and gee, they looked around, and way up back between these two great big guys, there was this one seat in the middle, the most unwanted seat on the plane. But they said, well, you can have that seat. And I said, great. I'm happy. I'll get to Boston on time and no problem. So I went and sat down and was putting my stuff away and settling in and they found another seat for the second person waiting to fly standby. And they said, well, you can come on, you, you, can, you can fly also. Great, they were ready to close the door, closing the door. And for some reason, somebody got up out of first class and got off the plane. <laughs> so they called back this thir- third person that was flying standby who there's this young fellow with, you know, dreadlocks and shorts and <laughs> everything he owned in a knapsack. And they said, uh, come on, you can fly that way. Put him in the first class seat. <laughs> I was unhappy. <laughs> I was really unhappy. Because I was the frequent flyer with the most miles who should have got the best leftover seat, right? Wouldn't any of you think that? <laughs> Well, I tried to protest, but they uh, said, no, we're leaving on time. Sit down. You got your seat. You're flying standby anyway. Mm. So I was really unhappy. So for the first half hour of the flight, I was composing my letter to United Airlines complaining about my treatment because I was a frequent flyer who, da-da-da-da-da, you know how we do. I am who I should be, the frequent flyer, and I should get preferential treatment. Well, a half hour into the flight, I said, well, I got another five and a half hours. Um, Is this how I want to spend my next? (laughs) No. So I said, well, what's going on here? I'm sitting on the plane. 
I'm getting to where I want to be on time. Good. Let it go. Let that be generous. Let that other fellow have the first class seat. (laughs) So something just, uh, for once, I was able in that situation to see clearly enough to let go of my identification with being a frequent flyer who should get the benefits of being a frequent flyer. So I let go and, you know, made the trip and it was fine. What actually happened there? I got identified with my role, my relationship to United Airlines, my role as a frequent flyer, and with that identification, I was suffering. When I could let go of the identification with that frequent flyer status, everything else remained the same. I was on the plane, I was still a frequent flyer, I still had all the miles, I was still going to get to Boston on time. Everything was the same except I wasn't suffering. To the extent that we can let go of our identification with our role, our relationship, to the extent that we can let go of it, we stop suffering. Everything else stays the same. If we find ourselves suffering here, I'm a yogi, I should deserve something. Anybody found themselves in that role today? Probably. Or any other role that we take on and hang on to, we suffer. When we let go of the identification, we stop suffering and everything else remains the same. Our identity, our sense of who we think we are, is not only a single role or a single relationship, of course. It's a very complex tapestry, woven tapestry of many roles, many relationships. But in any moment of suffering, we can identify which role, which relationship are we hanging on to. And in seeing that, we can learn how to let go. Let it be. Let go of the identification with it. Drop into the present reality, the present experiential reality. Passenger on airplane, sitting in uncomfortable seat, period. That's it. And what did that feel like? Well, you know... (laughs) such as it was. That's what it felt like. Here we get the opportunity, of course, to look at the infinite variety of identifications that we fall into. You don't have to give up that role or that relationship. We only need to let go of our identification with it in order to stop suffering.
The second experience that serves to condition a belief in an enduring entity, an enduring self, within this process is the body. The body is one of the uh, five aggregates. But I want to speak about what we perceive as the continuity of the body, because that is what we get identified with, as well as the appearance of the body. Now, there's an obvious continuity of our bodies from the time we're born till now. I mean, uh, I was just talking to someone in the staff dining room. He said, my childhood friend, uh, you know, said that I don't look any different than I did when I was 10 years old. And this woman was 40-something. Of course, she looks a little different, but... <laughs> I mean, there's a recognizable uh, continuity from age 1 to 10 to 10 to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 40, and for some of us, to 50 and more. Now that pattern may have its underpinnings in genetics, but increasingly we are hearing about and even discovering for ourselves how much of our body, how much of our appearance, is really the manifestation of our mind. What chronic patterns of holding the mind is engaged in is written in our body, on our body. We act it out physically. Practice here paying really careful attention to how we experience the body moment to moment reveals another dimension than something we see in the mirror every day. At times we see we feel just how impersonal the body really is, how it does its thing without our input, without our control, without our permission even. And so we have to ask ourselves, whose body is this that I'm inhabiting? Take, for example, um, your senses, your, your, your ears, or your eyes. How do your ears work? How do you hear? Do you say, okay, now I want to hear something? Now I don't? Do we make it work? Do we make that happen in any way? Or is it just an automatic thing? You know, a sound comes, hits this little place in here, somewhere and gives rise to to hearing consciousness. In in some ways we don't have anything to do about it. Same with with seeing, with smelling. Some of us wish we could turn off our senses sometimes. Smelling, hearing, seeing. But we can't. 
the body is really not ours to, to control, is it? When we pay attention to the sensations in the body, how we actually experience the body. You know, we all have studied some degree of anatomy. We know, you know, there's skin, bones, muscles, uh, organs, stuff like that. And when we pay attention to how we actually experience this body, what do we discover? Throbbing, pulsing, tightness, tingling, vibrating, hardness, aching, pain, stretching, tension, tightness. Where's the bone in that? Where's the heart in that? Where's the blood in that? Where's the muscle in that? There isn't any. Experientially, the body is just these elements of sensation. The Buddha described them as the four elements of earth, hardness, softness, lightness, rigidity, gentleness. Air elements, stiffness, tightness, tension, pushing, pulling, pulsating, vibrating. Heat are the fire element, heat, coolness, lightness. And the water element, cohesion, stickiness, fluidity, flowing. So the Buddha saw these four great elements bubbling along, creating the illusion of my body. At times, as we pay very careful attention to the body, we see through the illusion, the the substantiality of the body. And we come to uh, what I call body distortions. You know, sometimes we feel uh, extremely heavy, like we couldn't possibly be that heavy. Or we feel uh, just expansively uh, insubstantial. Or we feel uh, we have some emptiness within us that feels bigger than the whole universe. And we have these experiences because you know, the mind is seeing the body as it truly is. Elementally, heaviness, emptiness, lightness. Or sometimes we, we, we see that the body moves, you know, spontaneous body movements, you know, jerks and twitches and, and uh, limbs moving and eyes fluttering and, and things happening completely out of our control. The movement of the elements moving the body. When we see this clearly, the nature of the body, we see how evanescent, how insubstantial, how uncompact it really is. Slowly, but most assuredly, as we discover this perspective of the physical reality, it begins to weaken our identification with the body as me. Just a little bit. We have these momentary experiences, or maybe it lasts for five minutes or a whole sitting, where we don't, we don't feel the body like we usually do. It's not my knee 
that hurts. It's this vast, you know, fire burning in empty space. It's not my hunger of my stomach. It's the emptiness of the universe. And these, these momentary or these experiences, these insights really into the nature of the body serve to uh, put our belief, I am this body, in jeopardy. And slowly as we accumulate these experiences, as they come, they reorient our understanding of the body. It isn't a matter of belief. You don't have to believe this. It's a matter of seeing clearly enough times and you can't possibly not believe it. The Buddha said, or to paraphrase the Buddha, the entire universe is found in this body. Whatever we can experience anywhere in this universe is experienced right here. We don't need another one. We don't need a better one or a younger one or a nicer one. This is good enough. The whole universe Whatever can be experienced is experienced here. One time in my practice in Burma, there was a considerable ease and tranquility and a real smoothness to practice. And at that time, when I would sit, it felt like um, I, I, I say I, but in the words there wasn't one very solid. It just felt like evaporating was happening. Pretty insubstantial stuff. When I would walk, even to lunch or whatever, it felt like I was naked, transparent. The wind blew, blew right through me. It's like I wasn't there. It felt like I didn't have my robes on, and a few, more than once I was walking and, and had to kind of look at myself to make sure that I was covered, because I thought people could see right through me, or through my robes. It was very kind of an uncomfortable feeling, but the lightness was nice. Very insubstantial feeling, very evanescent, very just uh, so insubstantial. So I went to my teacher at that time, Saido uh, Ulekana, and I told him what I was experiencing, and he said, and now you know what it was like when you just came out of your mother's womb, when you had no identification with your body. It's possible to let go to see through this identification with the body. To not claim it as me or mine, but rather this temporary manifestation of the elements which we happen to know intimately.
And we all have that momentary. We get glimpses of it here. We shouldn't dismiss these momentary glimpses of seeing through the solidity of the body, seeing through our identification with it. Even just a temporary passing glimmer, or sometimes the whole sitting, when the body is just not the playground of our attachment and aversion. We should give it credibility and really recognize that what we are seeing is the anatta characteristic, the non-self characteristic of the body. We've all had that experience. Don't dismiss it. It's insignificant. So we have our identification with roles, uh, relationships. We have the continuity of the body. The third experience, which serves to condition a belief in an entity here, is our memory. Memory is a function of the mental state of the aggregate, sanya, or perception. It is sanya, or perception, which is responsible for memory. Now, I am amazed, as you probably have been too, how selective our memory is. Most of us probably can't remember what we had for lunch two days ago. And yet, some insignificant comment or criticism of 20 or 30 years ago can bug us for weeks. Isn't that true? And that memory, 20 years ago, somebody said, you jerk, or something like that, that's the one we get identified with. That memory. When we're asked by someone that we've just met or a stranger, oh, who are you? We usually uh, lay out this litany of memories, things we have done as a display of who I am. For the most part, we have a semblance of control over memory. Thank goodness. Because we carefully select those memories that we want to present to that person. And so we can preserve the illusion of a continuity of me from then till now by repeatedly reaffirming this particular litany. However, here on retreat, that control slips and the skeletons come out of the closet. And we start to see all kinds of memories that we would rather not sometimes.
when we are uncovering, as we do, our past, our personal history, a function of mindfulness, a process of letting go of all of our accumulated stuff, we inevitably come across painful memories. And the reason they're painful is because we hang on. We have been hanging on since the time of their occurrence. The sense of self that was constellated by those momentary conditions remains often deeply buried. And when the memory is uncovered and it comes into view, we feel it. Not because we're finally now different, but only because the mindfulness is clear enough to see things as they really are. At that time of that experience, initially, not so much mindfulness. For whatever reason, we couldn't and didn't feel it. Nor were we able to let it go. We had no understanding that it was this impermanent, impersonal fluxing of phenomena completely outside of our control. And so we got identified with it. We grabbed onto it and said, this is me. This is happening to me. And now when we uncover it and we begin to uh, experience it and we begin to unpack all the feelings, all the associations, all the sensations in the body, we feel it more intently than we ever have before. But in the process, we bring some understanding, a little bit of understanding. This is an impermanent unfold. It's an unfolding of impermanent, impersonal stuff. If I can see my way through identification with it, let it pass as the fragments and bits and pieces of jetsam and flotsam from the past, let it go. But it's not easy because the identification has been repeated so many times, so often. We have to see it again and again and again in order to see through the construction of that sense of self and to see that this is just a passing show Sensations, thoughts, memories, feelings, images, and not claim it. Not uh, paste it all together with the glue of identification. In time, we learn a new way to relate to the memory. The memory remains, but the emotional identification, or the identification with the emotion, the identification with the sense of self that was constellated by those conditions, is let's go, or we let go of that. The memory remains, the emotion, the emotional attachment is gone. But it takes some, it takes some persistence, it takes some understanding of seeing in the present moment the unfolding. 
as momentary, as impersonal, as impermanent, as just the sensations that it is, the thoughts that they are, the images as they are. Really unpacking, you know, uh, mindfulness is like the solvent of the glue of identification. And you just pour this mindfulness on and the glue loosens up. And then bits and pieces of stuff start flying off. Let them go. It's really helpful to acknowledge memories as remembering. It's just remembering. Now, it's not only unpleasant memories. Pleasant memories, too, serve to condition a sense of self. One time I was practicing in Burma, and in the course of practice there had been a long period of very, what we would say, good practice. Very, you know, good continuity, good clarity of uh, noticing what was arising and passing away, and really distinct, uh, discrete, continuous phenomena, all four foundations of mindfulness. Really, anything that any of us would say, oh, this is good practice. And then, practice took a turn, and it wasn't so clear, and it wasn't so compact, and it wasn't so smooth, and it wasn't so obvious that this was good practice. It, it felt terrible. It felt like I was back at day one. It's amazing. We can be practicing for weeks, months, and the day comes along and we think, God, just like first day. How does that happen? Nevertheless, it was a, a time of having to make, again, continual effort. Just every moment, just having to start over again, start over again, drifting off, starting over again, drifting off, starting over again thinking that my practice is really gone. It wasn't the worst way last week. You know, what, what happened? So I went and told Upandita what was going on, and I said, my practice is not so good. You know, it's, it's, it's like I'm starting all over, day one. It's just, you know, I, 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 and I explained to him exactly what I was experiencing. And I was losing confidence, and I was just saying, this is not working. And Upandita says to me, well, he says, uh, you know, it is not possible. If you follow the schedule, if you make a sincere effort, it is not possible to go backwards. It's not possible. (laughs) What a relief. But then he explained to me, he said, what's happening here? He says, is your noting, your mindful noting has gotten good enough to notice the last moment's mindful noting. And so what's actually happening is mindfulness is noticing the end of the previous mindfulness. And the space in between those two feels like nothing feels like the end of practice. It feels like you're starting over the next moment. You know, that mindfulness ended. Next moment, you've got to start over. 
And this next moment notices the end of that moment. So what he was saying is, mindfulness is just noticing the end of a previous moment of mindfulness. There really is no one being mindful. Radical impermanence. The discontinuity of consciousness. How are you going to handle that? Here I am. I've been struggling for months. Trying to get my mindfulness together. Now he tells me there's nobody being mindful. (laughs) Well, that's what it felt like. Well, that isn't what it felt like, but it was a good explanation. Insight into that radical impermanence of the stream of consciousness, as uncomfortable as it was, as difficult as it was to be with, one of the necessary ingredients or one of the necessary insights for undermining this very tenaciously held belief in there being a me who's meditating. There's not. Mindfulness is being mindful. We can see this. We get glimpses of it. Don't dismiss those momentary glimpses of the fact that mindfulness does the work. You don't. They seem so, you know, I mean, we've all had glimpses of that. Bits and pieces, little bits here and there, maybe only once. But we have it. We begin to see it. It takes a lot, though. It does take a lot of these glimpses to totally uproot this belief. It does. I mean, you know, a couple of glimpses and then the next three days of identifying. Well, you know, who wins? It's pretty clear. But in time, those glimpses are powerful. They do cut through this belief, this wrong way of seeing this process. Roles and relationships, continuity of the physical body, selectivity of memory. The fourth experience that also conditions uh, a sense of self is the uh, appearance of control through our ability to make choices, to make decisions. I spoke about this earlier a little bit, so I'll just quickly review this one. Most of us believe, I think pretty strongly, that the person inside of our body and mind, that being, has made the decision to be here. Has brought this body to this room now and is listening to this Dharma talk, hopefully. We might have had that intention. And yet, 
somewhere in the course of the talk, maybe only for an instant, the mind spaces out. Right? Who made that decision? Who made that choice to leave? For the mind to just go, go away. We see, you know, both in that and we see in many other instances in, in our days here that we're often on automatic pilot and we don't know who that pilot is. You know, the plane is being driven by an anonymous somebody. And yet, our conscious, our rational, our kind of uh, believable understanding is that I'm in control. I make the decisions. I'm the one who's uh, choosing to do, to be here, and to do this. I think I asked you once before, but let me, let me ask you again. You come in, you sit down, and you tell your mind, okay, be mindful for the next 45 minutes. And you tell the body, be comfortable. <laughs> and then you just close your eyes and, and wait for the time to go by. And somewhere in the middle of sitting, the knee starts screaming, or the back starts screaming and saying, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, I hurt. And so we, we start the debate, should I move or not? Should I adjust my posture, get some relief, or should I endure it, bear it, cut through it? We've all had this debate at least once in this retreat. <laughs> I know. Okay? So who's debating who? Right? You know, the pain is debating the mind. And so the mind, you know, fear arises in the mind. It says, I better move, I'm going to hurt my body. Permanent damage. <laughs> and confidence comes in and says, no, wait a minute, I can endure this. This is not so bad. I've sat through this before. I'm going to do it again. Aversion arises and says, ah, I don't like this pain. <laughs> Equanimity arises and says, wait a minute. Let's approach this thing gently. <laughs> Give it a little space. Let's not demand anything of it. And desire says, ah, I want some relief. I don't care about this spaciousness. I just want some relief. And boredom says, I've seen this before. <laughs> what good is it to see it again? I've watched this already. And doubt says, what's the benefit of sitting with this pain anyway? <laughs> right? And we're all ready to squirm, but we say, wait, that's just an impulse, that's an intention. I'm not going to move. <laughs> just notice that. And this goes on for, you know, five minutes, or five seconds maybe. <laughs> maybe ten seconds. Then we remember something, somebody said, see if you can sit with it for another minute. I say, okay, I'm going to sit with another minute. After 59 seconds, the mind starts screaming again. At some point, we either move or we don't, or at many points, we either don't move or we do. Who made the decision? 
it is very difficult to see what conditions behavior. Very difficult to see it. And yet, kind of off the top, we say, I know what makes me do what I do. I choose to do it. But when we look really closely, what do we see? We don't choose anything. Conditions play out. And at some point, if we move, fear conditions intention, the intention conditions the movement. Where are you? Are you the fear? No. Are you the intention? No. Are you the movement? No. Where are you? You're not there. You've gone home. Automatic pilot again. This is what we see. You should really pay attention. This is, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing when we go through that debate, and it's good, I mean, it, it's good to pay attention to that debate, whether to move or not, because in it is revealed the selflessness of this process. You see? We've all had that experience. We've all had deep and profound insight into anatta already. Good. It's these, it's these experiences that begin to really cut through this illusion that we are in control. This identification with volition. And this is, this is uh, uh, Chaitanya. Another one of the, one, another one of the uh, aggregates. And we get identified with it. We think, I'm in control. But we're not. And when we see that, instead of feeling bad, we should be elated. Great. Good insight. I'm not in control. We're still responsible for whatever the body does, so don't, don't forget that. <laughs> oh, time is running out. Um, I'll leave it at that. So... These are some of the experiences that we all have. We all believe, when we don't look carefully, that they, that they indicate a me, a mind, my body, my thoughts, my feelings, my decision. And yet when we look very closely, and this is the benefit of a retreat, of a long retreat like this, we get to see over and over again the minute movements, moment to moment, of the mind and the body interacting to create this illusion. And we just take it apart, bit by bit, slowly, slowly, very slowly, very carefully. And we just see that, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. We can't own it, we can't claim it. But to the extent that we kind of haphazardly or carelessly uh, assume something, and get identified with it, then we suffer. But in our clearest moments, we do all begin to see through this illusion. And in time, the frequency of this clear vision, this right view, will prevail. So let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.